Thank you, Justy. I mean, I should say the band. Good morning. Uh, are we, we getting, we, we going already? There we go. There we go. Somebody's up. Somebody's with me. That's it. Sister from the hood. I know who it is. There you go. You guys think that's, you guys think I'm kidding. That lady who just yelled at me, we got lots in common. <laughs> lots in common. I'm supposed to do a bit of a commercial, um, an infomercial. This is a Hope Community Church infomercial. Um, a while back, Mike and, Mike and Denise and the, our, the elders sort of got behind Mike to develop a, what we're calling Hope Pastoral Counseling. And it's a, it's a, a way for Mike to do one other thing that he loves besides parceling theology and thinking about grace as it applies and teaching it to us. He also um, has the capacity to really counsel and sit with people one-on-one and um, help them work this thing out practically. So how does, how does grace and mercy and love and new covenant and commitments flesh out in the life of folks that come to our church. So um, I just want to make the the commercial that the, the office is open, and he's taking folks. Um, if you have someone or you know someone that could benefit from sitting down and talking with somebody who's steeped in grace like Mike is and doing it from a pastoral care perspective, um, He's available, and in the at each of the doors there are cards. So what I would encourage you to do is grab four or five of them, because you're going to be talking to somebody, and they're going to start to talk to you in a way, and you're going to say, "I got I got somebody for you." Um, again, it's an opportunity to do two things: one, to give Mike a chance to do something that he loves to do as well, but it also gives the church an opportunity to supplement Mike, so the income that comes helps him adjust his income and adjust what we have to gather together to pay pastoral staff and that kind of thing. So there's a twofold kind of thing that happens. That's a blessing to us and to him. So again, I want to point those out. Grab a handful of those and, and, um, um, if you happen to know somebody that needs a good ear and somebody who can bless them with grace, then, um, think about whole pastoral counseling. Alright, so today, we're I think one, one Sunday away from finishing the series, and we're in the series of Search for Serenity, and today we want to talk about trust. I'm just going to read the, the whole serenity prayer, um, the way Reinhold Niebuhr, um, wrote it, and, and you'll find it at the end of your worship folder, probably too small to read, but it's there, it's there. God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things we cannot, the things that cannot be changed, the courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish one from another. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, 
not as we would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. And we're going to take a look at biting off the idea connected to trust. This whole, this, this notion of trust from a, from a grace-based perspective. And the passage Mike and I chatted about, and I, I, I was surprised. Mike said, well, I think we ought to land on Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. And I'm thinking in my head, man, there ain't, that ain't much to teach on. And then I read it, and then this week started studying it, and last night tried to condense it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. There is a lot here. And I'm going to read it to you one way, and the way you have it in your worship folder is different. Try not to read that yet. The reason I put it in there is because I want you to see the difference between text when you're studying the Bible um, and and the way that the NIV renders it and the way someone who has a sense of what the words actually say renders it. So I'm going to read it from the NIV. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. It's good and pleasing and perfect will. So, so that text is a bit confusing because every time I read it, I start thinking that, that God's will is something we need to figure out. And there's a okay will and a good will, like, sort of like in a, in my work, we have a prognosis. Poor, fair, good, excellent. And there seems to be, you know, some of you poorly understand God's will. And some of, some of us fairly understand God's will. And then there are some elite who have a good understanding of God's will. And then there are those people who are probably close to Jesus that have an excellent understanding of God's will. But that's not the, that's actually not what he's saying here. And so, let's take a look at it. Take a look at it in two acts. Act one, understanding the act of worship. And act two, needing to understand the challenge of this age in it, when it comes to trust. I spent a lot of time in my office developing the notion of trust. And what I figured out is this, that when people come to see me, they need two things. They need a safe haven. My office has to be a place that's safe. And safety doesn't mean it's comfortable. Safety doesn't mean it's cushy. Safety means I have a relationship with you that can't be disregarded or torn apart. Safety means you always have your space in my office anytime you come. Safety means that you don't have to worry about my insecurity. Now, I, I don't, I'm not perfect, so I'll, some people make me insecure. 
But my job is to work on my own stuff so that I react well to whoever comes in the door. And I create a place where they can predictably understand I'm not going to be mad and I'm not going to hurt them. Okay? Safety also includes the notion of consistency. That God, or that in my office, because of God, you can count on me to do and say the same things. Apparently, and some of you who've been in my, who've watched me teach or been around me, I, I have a look that's notorious over the top of my glasses, you know, and some things like this. And so my clients will get together and talk about me. And my supervisees will, and they'll ask each other, has he given you the look? So apparently, it's the same thing. Some people are laughing. <laughs> they know the look. And so when I say consistent, I mean that that there's things that I do in my office that are always the same. And there are ways I respond that are always the same. And you can count on it. People say, I already knew what you were going to say when I came in here. Because I, I, I live in the place called grace. And it dictates sort of my response. My response, my personal response is different than the way I re- react. And the third thing that grows trust is acceptance. So if trust is going to happen, acceptance is important. And I have to be able. So we're going to talk a little bit about this passage. And then I'm going to read to you at the end Philip's version of the passage. And you'll see why. So. Hopefully we can turn to the first slide. I don't have a clicker, so I can't do it. All right. So we must understand two things, the act of worship and the challenge of this age. And I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to give you kind of five or six things I'm thinking because this thing is meaty. And I promise I'm still going to get you out of here in time for Father's Day at the restaurant. See, I, I, I said to Jay this morning, parenting is spelled M-O-M, except for today. Most of the time, family life and parenting is spelled M-O-M, capital, M-O-M, except for today. And some people even forget today, right? So much love to the fathers out there. And then I also have to say this. Now, my attire today was in honor of someone that goes through our church. Anybody make a guess? My wife said, you look like Jay Murphy this morning. <laughs> I said, that's what I was thinking about. Like, Jay wears shirts out. Do I got it, Jay? I got the shirt out sweet. The only thing I couldn't figure out is how to cuff up your pants like you do. Like, I couldn't. I'm like, nah, man, that ain't me, man. I can't do that one, so. <laughs> so, so I had to just let that go, so. She said, you look like Jay Murphy. I said, it's a black Jay Murphy. That's good, man. We're good. We're good. So Paul says, we're going to take the verses apart. I'm going to, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So I'm going to tell you five things that I think is required to worship. To worship is to understand that as believers we're family, brothers and sisters in Christ because of Christ. 
we are now connected, as Jay was talking about this morning, connected to the Father deeply and dearly. To worship is to understand that we're family. Look around. Now, there's some knuckleheads up in here. If you look around. But we're found. And it means that we, and that's the idea, one of the ideas as I'm starting to study this passage. And the reason we're family is not because of what we've done or what we haven't done or what we're able to control or what we're able to not or do. It's because of the work of Christ. We can sit in the same room and know one another as family. The second thing is, To worship is to understand that from the view of mercy and grace, it's to understand life from the view of mercy and grace. Paul wrote the letter and 11 chapters he spent laying out. Mercy and grace. It's one of the best articulations of what grace is really about. And then he uses the word therefore. So it's important, and he Ask us in view of God's mercy. And I add grace. So life must be understood in the context that we, that yet while we were lost in our understanding and our insecure position and our sincere attempts to influence or make an appeal to God with dead sacrifices, God so loved us that he sent his son to accomplish what we couldn't do. Your act of mercy is to understand the view of grace is we stand united together because of mercy and grace. And that was something we couldn't do. And anything we offer before or after is a dead sacrifice. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't add to your relationship with the Father. It doesn't improve it, and it can't destroy it. The question is, do you trust what Christ did? Do you even understand mercy and grace? Mercy, not getting the judgment and the punishment that we deserve. Grace, having gotten God's goodness for free. Mercy, not experiencing condemnation, grace, but instead experiencing blessing and being called out and set apart as his children. That's worship. Thirdly, I got to tell you a story first. When I was, I came up to Sioux Falls, I must say, I came up to Sioux Falls, I made two mistakes. I thought Sioux City was Sioux Falls. I didn't stop there, but I said, this place stinks. I got to keep moving, man. (laughs) The second mistake was I didn't change my antifreeze. So my little 83 or whatever it was, sport about, we got up here, and as soon as October hit, it was frozen. And I didn't know what was wrong. I took it to my professor's house. He couldn't figure it out. It was just... (laughs) And sat in the garage, and probably two months later he figured it out because the antifreeze stalled while I was in the garage, and we could start it. But my the love of my life was in Kansas. And so 
I had a friend named Ed who was a MDiv student, and one November or whatever, I wanted to get home, get to Kansas to see Lori, and I got no car. And Ed said he had he had a little eighty. 83 Renault. Anybody remember those little cars? Little, little, kind of like a Volkswagen, but not really. Kind of like a, a, a Flintstone mobile. You might be able to put your foot through it and run like this. But he said, I make available my Renault. I think it'll get you there. All right. I jumped in that Renault at about 11 o'clock at night and took off. Fell asleep somewhere in, in Nebraska on my way into Kansas. Woke up, got back on the road, got to see Lori, and then in about 10 hours or so, turned around and drove back. Here's why I tell you that story. Ed made his car available to me as it was. It wasn't a Mercedes-Benz. It wasn't my friend Fred's uh, Mazda MRX that I could have drove and probably wrecked somewhere. <laughs> it was too fast for me. He made that car available. Here's what I want you to understand. To worship is to understand that from the view, from this view of mercy, God's desire is that we make to him, make available to him our bodies. Make available to him our body. And some people make that Spiritual, some people sort that out and say, well, you gotta make available the good and praise and blah, blah, blah. That's not the message of the word there. We are to make available like Ed made the Renault available to me. I am to make available my body, my, my mind, my soul, my spirit, the physical and the spiritual parts of me, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We are to make it available. We are to make our beliefs, our doubts, our fears, our worries, all of us, that comprises you and me. Worship is making that available to God, for him to use. See, I always thought worship, you put that, you know, you, where I grew up, you don't come into the worship center until you put the junk aside. That means I gotta cut off 60% of me or 80% of me and walk in with an arm and a leg. Hey, look, hey, hey, here we go. Cause there ain't much that's good. But from the view of mercy, from the view of grace, worship, we have to offer our bodies, mind, spirit, and soul, body and spirit, doubts, fears, worries. Crazy thoughts, same thoughts, in between. Put those at the altar of God. Make them available. All you guys look like Renault, raggedy. And God says, make that Renault available for kingdom. And you might be surprised what happened. My professor, Dr. Harris, he said, oh, JC, you coming to seminary? I said, yeah, coming to seminary. He said, glad to see you here. We're getting a little mail. Mail about me. Well, we was getting some complaints at the seminary because I was there. I, mean, I won't go into that why it was, but there was a reason why that we were getting some complaints. And I was worried about my standing. So I talked to Dr. Harris and he said, don't worry about the complaints. He said, here's what, here's the problem. 
you've made yourself available to God by coming to seminary. All I'm going to ask you to do, we'll take care of the complaints and the issues that people have with you being here. What I'm asking you to do is strap your seatbelt on. Get ready because God's going to use you. Believe it or not, as you are, he's using you already. Believe it or not, in your pain, in your anguish, in your confusion, in your doubt, as we approach the throne and make ourselves available, he uses you. It's not qualified. He uses you. He changes you. You'll see what he says. Fourthly, to worship is to know and appreciate that when we remain available to God, he considers that service and worship. Did you hear what I said? As we remain available. Some of you are like me. You said, no, that ain't what I call worship. I thought worship was what Jesse just did. No, worship's day in, day out, 24-7. It's a battle. And all he's asking us to do, he's not asking us to be perfect or disciplined or blah, 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 blah. He's saying, Jay, make yourself available, man. And I'm saying, yeah, but Lord, look, you don't understand what's going through my head right now. I I can't come to you with with the thoughts I got in my mind. He's saying, make yourself available. Well, I don't like the fact that so-and-so sick. He's, He's saying to Joel, make yourself available. Your grandpa's with me. And Joel's like, I'm in grief. Make yourself available. All you got to do is remain. You hold hope and you hold the suffering. The prayer says the pathway to peace is what? Anybody heard it? What? What? Hardship. Are you serious? Now, who? what church preaches that? The pathway to peace is getting your butt kicked. That's what he's saying. Worship. And fifthly, to worship is to understand God, the Father, sees this as what families who are family members who are set apart do, and it pleases him. Know this. I bring my ugly to God, and he's smiling. Son, I'm glad to see you. I bring my doubts, like, I don't know if I believe in you. He's smiling. In seminary, when I was getting harassed for being there or whatever, I used to walk around the block and I used to bring some other stuff to God that I won't tell you what I used to say. And then I would go back to my room shocked I get, didn't get hit by a lightning bolt. Like, dang, I said, I said some crazy stuff to you, Dad. And you didn't hit me with a lightning bolt? And that messed with me. Like, how come I didn't get hit with a lightning bolt? I told him. I told God. Like, yo, dude, for real? And I didn't get hit with a lightning bolt. The act of worship is understand the Father sees you, understands you, sympathizes with you. And when you approach the throne as you are, and you do some things, you approach, you relax, let your hands hang, and you speak freely with God. Understand that's worship. And understand that mercy and grace is what secures that place. 
not your condition, what you say, how you are. Mercy and grace, the gift from God, secures my position. It gives me a safe place and a secure place to stand, confident. And we cannot lose our spot by being a certain way or speaking a certain way. When we speak our hearts to the Father. When we make ourselves available and say, God, this is it, dude. This is all you get today. He doesn't say, well, you know what, Jay? You lost your spot today, dude. We ain't having that. He don't come that way. He don't come that way. He sees Jay stepping with tears in his eyes. Watch. Watch. Crazy. I was reading this thinking, Mike, what'd you do to me, man? Like, just just preach this passage, Jay. <laughs> Whatever, dude. Whatever. The second verse then poses the challenge. Once we understand worship, we also have to understand what the challenge to worship is. That's verse 2. It says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So here's, I stole this from a group. Travis will appreciate this. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a group called Beautiful Eulogy, and they have an album called Instruments of Mercy. So, I had to steal that, Travis. You just check me out, see if I ruined it for you. So we need to understand the challenge. And so there's five or six challenges we'll move through. And in the first challenge, I want you to think of, anybody know what, raise your hand if you know what modeling clay is. You know what modeling clay is? And does anybody know what you have to do to get modeling clay to be pliable? You have to work it, but what that working does is the warmth of your hand, or the the warmth of the working softens the clay. But ask, raise your hand if you know what modeling clay is again. Everybody, raise your hand. Does it change the modeling clay? Does the modeling clay become something else? Okay, so keep that in mind. So what Paul says is to be an instrument of mercy is to resist being squeezed or pressed into the mold of this age. The word, if you, if you, the word world is a system. It's an age. It's a, the father of this age. It's the, it's, it's a, it's beliefs and values and those kinds of things. And the first thing we gotta understand, Paul gives an imperative. It's almost a command. Not almost, it's a command. And he tells us what not to do. He says, don't be pressed and squeezed back in to thinking the way the world thinks and the way the world would have you think. Now, that doesn't mean, I thought that meant don't sin. Hear me out now. I'm not so sure that's what that's about. As much as it is about turning your hearts away from grace and mercy. See, once we become believers, 
then we start saying things like, well, you know, at Hope, all they ever preach is grace, man. I'm tired of grace, man. I need, I need something. Man. I need some discipline, man. I'm going away to this church to get me some discipline. In my head, I'm thinking, what more can we preach than grace? What more can we preach than God's mercy? Then I see some of us come back. Ah, oh, man, that, you know, that discipline stuff, man, they ain't, them dudes is crazy over there. Or, they tried to get me to do this or that. And I know my position in Christ. That ain't, I'm coming back. Resist being squeezed. And here's what gets you. The, the, the philosophy of this world simple. It tells you a couple, tells you three things. It tells you that to assume you're alone. That's he's saying it. What is that the verse said? I am not alone. The very first tenet of the world, this this age, is to say you're alone. The second thing this world will try to get you to do is it will use hardship and trouble to tell you, hey, God ain't there, though. He ain't hearing you. He ain't answering you. You probably need to figure it out on your own. And thirdly, and thirdly, the world then says, since you're alone and there's really not a God, or if he's there, he's busy, you need to rely on your own power, your own position, and your own perspective. And Paul said, no, no, don't be pressed back into that. Instruments of mercy, too, need to understand that we're surrounded, as the serenity prayer says, we live in two worlds. This age, this world, a system of beliefs, philosophies, and values, it's both external and internal. One of my first passages I memorized as a therapist is, we fight not against flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers of the world. And I, and I, and I thought that meant, you know, what I learned in seminary about family dynamics, but what I'm starting to understand now is, is it's not necessarily what produces pathology or crazy in a family. It's what separates us from the love of God. Did you hear what I said? It's not what produces pathology. It's what separates us from a loving father. So we have to understand we live in a place that's designed to press us and squeeze us away from the reality of a loving father on one hand, and on the other hand, we have hope. And that's another reality. That we are connected to a father who's committed to us, who is safe, and who is consistent, and who accepts us, and understands us, and sympathizes with us. And will change our definition of what good is. <laughs> Preach your sister. Preach your sister. Thirdly, as instruments of mercy, to be instruments of mercy means to understand that we're being transformed, changed progressively and persistently as we live in the tension of this age and the age of grace and mercy together. The image I have is, and you, some of you heard this story, it's a caterpillar. Now, I'm partial to butterflies. 
And, and when I was little living in Los Angeles and we had a classroom of 40 knucklehead students and whatever, the teacher had the craziness to engage in an experiment. And the experiment was we all got caterpillars and we, we were going to watch them turn into, into not butterflies, but moths, I think. And so I got my butterfly and you know, I'm from an alcoholic family and, and now I got something to care for and I got something that's predictable and I can watch it and take care of it. And it ain't crazy. And every time I come, it's the same, but just a little different. And I watch my caterpillar crawl up into a part of a leaf and spin itself into this white, silky cocoon. And it was a caterpillar. It had 80 legs, and it was fuzzy. And I watched it spin and disappear on me. And then in the class, we had, you know, 30, 45 kids, and other kids, caterpillars, started turning into something else and coming out of their cocoons. And I came one day early to school, and my caterpillar was, like, trying to break out. So I went and got some scissors. And I clipped the cocoon. Guess what happened to my butterfly? He fell on the floor in the jar. Bloop. I'm crying. The teacher's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I tried to help the, the, the butterfly come out. She said, Jay, the butterfly needed the tension of the cocoon. To finish the transformation. I went, what? What's he saying here? We must be. We are being transformed progressively. We're in a cocoon. We were a caterpillar. Now we're in a cocoon. And not on this side of the grave, but on the other side of the grave, we will fly. We will be butterflies. But in the meantime, you and me look messy. I'm telling you, a little sticky up in here. And, I, and none of us need any help with our cocoon. But most of us want the pain and the pressure of transformation to go away. And most of us have been trained by system to believe that if there's hearts in trouble, something must be wrong. Not true. To be instruments of mercy, we must, we, we, it means we participate in transformation by remaining or being available and remaining connected to God and life like this. The word means that we don't do the transforming. The word the word is the difference between I went to the store or Lori took me to the store. The second is what they mean. I transformed myself. And no, nobody like me really was invested in trying to change myself. None of you like that. True. I can fix this myself. Now, I believe some of you are. That's our wiring. But the transformation that's going to occur from the inside out is God taking us to the store and transforming us. And he takes us to the store through this place we call life. And he doesn't cut it out or dismiss it. or That's part of the process. And So if we remain confident, then God does promise 
He promises to turn stony hearts into hearts of flesh. And he promises to take insecure people and make them secure in him. That's the deal. I want the worship team to come up. I mean, Jesse, as I finish my last two points. Instruments of mercy. To be an instrument of mercy means that God's spirit challenges and changes our beliefs and our perspective. And what we call good gets redefined. As we proceed, he is pleased. And he is growing us and maturing us. My idea is that we are fine wine aging in a vat called life to be poured out into a crystal glass called heaven. That's that's the idea. I'll say that again. We are fine wine aging in a vat called life to be poured out in crystal, a crystal goblet called heaven. And lastly, to be an instrument of mercy means we understand that God's will for us is to understand at a deeper and deeper level that he loves us and that good is ahead of us and that he is indeed pleased with us and he will mature us. We age well. Now, having said that, let me read Philip's version of the verse. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers and my sisters, as an act of intelligent worship, to give your bodies as living sacrifices, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your mind from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of maturity. Amen? Father, I just want to say, we want to say thank you for what you've done. We want to be instruments of mercy. We want to understand life from the view of grace and mercy. And we understand we are, we are acts of worship. And we understand we want to bring and be available to you to do as you would, to do as you will in our life. Make us who you would make us to be. Use us how you would use us. And we thank you for allowing us to come as we are to you. In Jesus' name, amen.